Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 18 and to verse 18 of that chapter. Normally we have um, Deemer or myself, if Deemer's preaching, come and read our scripture before. But we're condensing things a little bit this morning because we do want to observe the Lord's Supper. If you're needing a Bible this morning, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have one so that you can follow along as we read the passage this morning, as we preach through it. So Mark is here with a Bible. Just raise your hand if you're needing a Bible this morning. We'll also put the words on the screen for you to be able, be able to follow along on the screen. But as I mentioned, we are going to be observing the Lord's Supper this morning. And uh, so I'm going to try to abbreviate things a bit and try to abbreviate the sermon even a little bit. I don't know if um, the word abbreviate and sermon and Steve in the same sentence ever works together, but we'll see this morning. But, uh, but we do want to come to this table this morning with our hearts in the right place. And so we're going to continue through our journey through Acts. And uh, I want us to look at this text today. And as we're reading through this, I want you to think about God's faithfulness to um, Paul and Paul's unrelenting faithfulness to God in this text. Acts chapter 18. We're only going to read a small section of Scripture, verse 18 through 23. A lot happens, though, in this small section of Scripture. So let's read Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 18. The Word of God says this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers to set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had his hair cut, or he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of, them, leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to this text of your word, Father, I pray this morning that we might be able to pull out of this text some application for us, and we might be able to see in this text um, some characteristics from Paul's life regarding how faithful, how committed he was to you, that we can then take in turn by your Spirit apply to our lives. Father, I thank you for every section of Scripture, the ones that are easy to preach, the ones that are hard to preach, the ones that um, we ignore sometimes, the ones that we're very, very familiar with. All of your Word is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for training, for bringing us up in righteousness. So God, I pray, Father, that you be with us now in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. And um, this text of Scripture here today that I want us to look at is um, it, it's, it's a passage of Scripture that's pretty condensed, and a lot happens here. Paul actually travels in this passage of Scripture today over 1,500 miles. In these short six verses, he travels over 1,500 miles. He's in all kinds of places. We read that he's, in, he's heading towards Syria. He's in Ephesus. He's in uh, Sancria. He's in a bunch of different places. He ends up at, way back at, at Caesarea, 
then he goes up to Jerusalem, then to his home um, church of Antioch. Um, and probably uh, during this passage of Scripture, we see uh, at least, um, at least half a year passing, six months passing in, this, in these six verses. So a lot's happening here in this text, maybe even more. Maybe was, there's a year that passes in this passage of Scripture here. But a, a lot's happening, yet it seems so condensed. And, and Luke just sort of kind of gives us a real, just sort of barely gives us a glimpse of what's happening here. And I think part of that is Luke's not with Paul in this passage of Scripture. And so he's not giving us a whole lot of details. But also, I think the Holy Spirit allowed it to be condensed like this so we can see the drive of Paul. We see his commitment, his faithfulness, and his drive. He's just, he is on the move. There's no stopping Paul. So I want to look at this passage this morning, and, and I want to talk some about faithfulness and about commitment. I mean, faithfulness, commitment, is sort of a lost thing in our culture today. I mean, I think about, I'm a big sports nut, and I think about professional athletes and and even this past year, one of the, I think the biggest sports story that was voted by these sports journalists was LeBron James moving from one team to the next. And there's no faithfulness and commitment anymore in sports. I mean, the players just go to where they think they're going to win a championship or where they're just going to get more money. And very rarely do you see an athlete who just sticks with a specific team for a long period of time because he's committed to that team. I mean, even the ones you think are, like Brett Favre, end up not being at the end or something. And so... There, there's just not, doesn't seem to be this commitment anymore to something. And, and I think it, it's reflected in not just our sports, but in our culture at large. Even, even where people work these days. There, there used to be, in, in a generation past, someone would work at a place and, and be committed to that place. And the employer would be committed to keeping them there. And there, there was a level of commitment and, and faithfulness. And, and the more mobile our society has become, the, the less commitment means anything or faithfulness means anything. And of course... We take it even farther to more serious things, and we all know the statistics that now uh, over half the marriages in our country end in divorce. It's 51% now, and that number just continues to kind of creep up every year. And, and so there's no longer any faithfulness and commitment in, in marriage either. And, and children, over half the children in our nation are learning not to be committed and, and not to be faithful no matter what. And so it just continues, and I think it, it also creeps into the church world. Um, you know, the, the thing today is to church shop and church hop. You know, you just kind of go and church hop and church shop. And now I, I run the risk of saying that because most of you came from another church that are here. Not all of you, but most of you came from a different church. Now, I do believe there's a time and a place that God moves us to a different church body, and maybe we leave because of doctrinal issues or something that is clearly a need to move. And sometimes it's just God's Spirit leading us to a new place of ministry. Because if you're coming to a church, you're not coming to sit and absorb. You're coming to minister. And so maybe that's the case. But we all know that that's not the case with everybody. And there seems to be an epidemic in our culture of just sort of church shopping and hopping and looking for what's next. And, and the commitment to a body, commitment to a family, because this is a family, commitment to a family of believers and Committing to each other is something that's kind of lost in the world today and in, in the church today. So I want to talk a little bit about faithfulness this morning. And I'm not just going to look at Paul's faithfulness. I want to talk about 
Jesus' faithfulness, Christ's faithfulness to Paul. And that's going to be my first point this morning. So if you look at your notes there, and we'll see if we can bring this up. All right. The first point, go back one for me, guys, is that Christ was unswerving in his faithfulness to Paul. And the reason I brought this to light is simply because last week I didn't actually, wasn't able actually to finish my sermon. So this was actually kind of the last point of last week. Because if you remember last week's passage, Paul, if you'll remember his state of mind, he was sort of um, down. He was in a, in, a, in a period of transition. And we talked about how he needed some encouragement. He needed some strengthening. And God was doing that in a variety of ways. And one of the ways that Jesus strengthens his man Paul is he comes and appears to him. And we read in verse 9, if you want to back up your Bible just a little bit and look at verse 9, this is a vision that Paul had one night. It says, do not be afraid. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. Do not be afraid. Because apparently that was Paul's frame of mind. He was coming into this pagan city of Corinth with fear and trembling. He said that himself. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. Be faithful. Continue. Push on. Verse 10, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And it goes on to say, in verse 11, that Paul stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Jesus appears to Paul and encourages him to stick with it for him to be faithful. Paul, remain faithful. Hang in there. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm with you. Don't fear. And gives him a specific revelation that he's not going to be harmed during his time there in Corinth. And if you remember last week, I talked about, you know, you may be saying, well, yeah, if Jesus appeared to me in the middle of the night too, I would be strengthened as well. And you don't have to have that because you have God's word right here. You have an infallible word, 66 volumes of encouragement to you, 66 volumes of a word spoken directly at you. So you're, you may be saying, well, I, I need Jesus to tell, tell me not to be afraid. I need Jesus to tell me keep on going. Well, he does all throughout that book. Hebrews 13, 5 is a good example. I will never leave you nor forsake you are the words of Jesus himself. And so we have a word from God. We don't need a night vision. But Paul is, has this encouragement that comes from Christ and, and, and then Jesus demonstrates his faithfulness to Paul in the very next verses. These are the verses we were not able to tackle last week. But I want to look at them real quick here this morning. Verse 12 of chapter 18. Because here Jesus appears to Paul, says, don't worry, no one's going to harm you. And what's the very next thing that happens? Is that Paul gets dragged before the authorities yet again. I mean, here's this guy, every city he goes into, he preaches the word. The, the Jews in particular get upset about it. They stir people up. Sometimes they stir the Gentile authorities up, like what happened in Philippi. And they take Paul, they drag him. Sometimes he gets stoned. Sometimes he gets thrown in jail and tortured. I'm, I mean, I just, you wonder what's happening as Paul's being dragged here in this text, in verse 12, before this, this, um, this judge named Gallio. If he's wondering, oh, I wonder what it's going to be this time. Stocks and bonds? Is it going to be stoning? What's it going to be? Am I going to be beaten with rods? And you just wonder if he's beginning to question that vision. Maybe I just ate something bad the night before. I don't know. Was that really Jesus saying, no one's going to harm you? And Christ demonstrates his faithfulness in this text by simply what happens. It says, when Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, 
but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, Paul's right there. Basically, what they're saying is that Paul is doing what's illegal in Rome, which is to, have a, is to practice a religion that's not been sanctioned by Rome or permitted by Rome. It'd be called a, a religio illicita, an illicit religion. All religions had to be approved by the emperor. Judaism was approved. And so they're bringing him up to Gallio here saying, Gallio, here's Paul. He's preaching an illicit religion. So it says in verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, I love this. Paul's about to open his mouth to make his defense. Gallio said to the Jews, he just cuts Paul off. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have a reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. So he drives them out of the tribunal. In verse 17, and it says they all seized Sosthenes. Now I'm not sure who the all is there. Maybe it's all the other Jews that are so angry at this point, and they're wanting to beat up Paul. And now they're mad at Sosthenes, who's their own president of their, um, of their synagogue. Or maybe it's the Gentiles who are stirred up, because we already know the Jews have been kicked out of Rome because of all the stuff's getting stirred up about this guy named Christus, Jesus. And, and the Jews seem to be having riots everywhere about this guy. So maybe the Gentiles say, we're, we're done with this. But whatever it is, they grabbed this guy named Sosthenes in verse 17, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this. So here's Sosthenes and the rest of the Jews bringing this charge. Sosthenes would have been leading the charge. This charge against Paul, hoping that he's going to get beat up and maybe put in jail or worse. Just eliminate the guy. He's causing problems everywhere. And the tables get turned. Totally. Paul doesn't even have to open his mouth. Jesus defends him and takes care of everything. And so I think Luke puts this in here for two reasons. Number one, to show us that Jesus followed through on his promise. Jesus followed through on his word. That what he said in verse 9 and 10, he, he followed through with. And to show that Paul was protected in a very special way in Corinth. And secondly, I think Luke puts it in here because this guy Gallio, he was a very well-known judge in that day and age. Matter of fact, he was the brother of Seneca. If you know your Roman history, Seneca uh, was an advisor to Nero and ends up being murdered. And, but one of his, um, uh, his brothers was Gallio, and he was famous for his good judgment. He, he made good judgments. And so... Luke puts this in here almost as a, an apologetic for the Romans who are reading this, the Gentiles who read this, this story of what happened, because this is like, in our courts today, a precedent's been set. And so this is a precedent. Galileo, this very wise judge, says, you know what? Rome has no say-so in what's going on about this Christ guy, this Jesus guy. And all. It's, you're, you're talking about words, scriptures, and names, Jesus that's your own deal. We're not going to mess with it. And so he sets kind of a precedent. And it kind of opens the doors, really, from this point forward for there not to be this legal challenge from the Jews against Paul and against the teachings of Christ. It doesn't mean the Jews are going to stop in their aggression, but this is a good precedent set for the sake of the gospel. So anyway, Jesus is faithful, unswervingly faithful to to, to Paul during this time, and he remains there 
Uh, he had already remained there a year and a half, and we read in the first, very first part of what we're reading this morning that he stayed many more days in verse 18. So we don't know how much more. Many scholars think that it's about nine months that he stays there beyond this first period of time. So he's been in Corinth for longer than he's been in any other place, and God has been faithful to him. God has always been faithful to him, even during times when he didn't protect him from harm and hurt and pain. God was still faithful to Paul. And Paul was faithful to God. And this morning, if you're here this morning, you're just doubting God's faithfulness. And you don't, can't see the purpose behind what he's allowing in your life. You can't see the purpose behind what's happening. Maybe it's an incident in your life. I know in our family, there's specific things that have happened over the last two weeks. And you just want to ask God, why? Come on. This is the way I see it working out. This is the just outcome of the situation that we're facing, and it ain't happening, God. Why? And there's ch- sometimes you're, you're challenged in your heart and your spirit. Is God being faithful here? Is he being faithful to me? Is he being faithful to the other people? Is he being faithful? And we just have to trust that, yes, he's being faithful. God is always faithful. His st- we, we sang songs about his faithfulness this morning. His steadfast love never ceases. His faithfulness, there's no end to it. He's always faithful, and we have to trust God and remain faithful to Him, knowing that He is always faithful to us. 2 Timothy 2.13, what a great promise. (laughs) It says, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. You see, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're going to partake of this bread and this cup this morning, then you're a believer Because only believers are to partake in this. And so you come this morning, and and if you're a true believer in Christ, then His Spirit resides in you. (laughs) And so, you know what? We may be unfaithful. In our flesh, we have those moments where, God, I don't think you're being faithful here, and so why should I be faithful to you? But you know what? His Holy Spirit resides in us. And so even when we aren't faithful, His Spirit is the one who keeps the law for us, not us. And so his spirit works in us to draw us back to him and to keep us faithful. So even when we're not faithful, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He'll continue to do a work in us. He'll continue to draw us to himself. He'll continue to sanctify us. He'll continue to bring us through that past. And we'll look back and wonder, why was I ever so unfaithful to God during that time of my life? So we trust God for his faithfulness, his continuing work in us. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Christianity is built upon the faithfulness of God through Christ, not our faithfulness. Every other religion in the world is about the faithfulness of its followers. How faithful can you be? Can you walk 10 miles on your knees to this shrine? Can you give a certain amount of money to this God? Can you, can you fashion enough altars for this God? Can you please this God? What can you do to be faithful to this God? And Christianity flips it on its head and said, it's not about how faithful you are. It's that He's faithful. He's the one who came. He's the one who saved you. He's faithful to you. That's what Christianity is all about. And it's His Spirit at work in us that keeps us faithful to him. And so he's the one. And so I started this message, actually preparing this message, just looking at Paul's faithfulness. Because Paul shows some tremendous faithfulness in this text. To God, to the gospel, and to the church. But as I was thinking about this, I had to come back to what gave him the power to go out to complete his vow and to be faithful. 
with the gospel. It was Christ's faithfulness to him. Remember, he was at this period where he was down and God was faithful to him and carried him through this time and encouraged him with the word. That's why it's so important to be in the word to carry you through these times where you don't feel like being faithful. So we see here the tremendous unswerving faithfulness of Paul. Second thing I want us to notice is that Paul was unrelenting in his faithfulness to Christ. Paul was unrelenting in his faithfulness to Christ. I was trying to think of an illustration for this. I just didn't have one until last night when I hear in the other room my son go, Woohoo! And he cheers for the Seahawks scoring a touchdown against the Saints because anyone who wants the Falcons to win certainly was happy to see the Saints get knocked out last night. Right? So, amen? All right. And so I go in there, and I see, I think, the, one of the most amazing runs I've ever seen in football as I watch this replay. It's simply one, I mean, I've, there's been some amazing runs in, that I've seen on television. I remember an amazing run that Barry Sanders had once, Emmett Smith had one once, where he just seemed like, but th- there was no way he could keep on going. But this one last night was simply amazing. I don't know if, who all saw this guy named Lynch? Okay, not very many of you, so this illustration isn't going to be very effective until you go home and you watch a replay of this. Go to NFL.com. They'll have it up there. So this guy named Lynch, I don't even know his first name, Marshawn or something like that. Is that right? Thank you, Mr. Lynch. He, he gets the ball. He's not a very famous running back. At least I don't think he is. He gets the ball, and it looks like he's, he, he goes for about four or five yards. It looks like he's going to get stopped. He may get the first down, and he just sort of bounces out of the pile, and then he keeps on running. And then from that point forward, it's simply amazing how many tackles he breaks. And these big old Saints players draping all over him, and they just kind of fall off. And he comes, at one point, he comes up to the Saints' safety. I don't know who this guy was, but he is really, he's embarrassed this morning as he watches replays. This safety gets all over him, and this Marshawn Lynch guy just simply shoves this safety about five yards backwards. And the guy just falls backwards, and then he just keeps on running. And the other cool thing was, this is why I love this, this, this highlight, was that it wasn't just this Lynch guy running. His whole stinking team is right there with him, including the quarterback, who usually hands the ball off and just kind of steps off to the side. No offense to to Toby, all right? But he just, you know, and and then these big old linemen are down there as well, and they're all just running down there. It's the whole team making this run happen. It was really awesome to watch. So as I was thinking about how unrelenting Paul is in his pursuit of, of doing what God's called him to do. His pursuit of being faithful to what he knows God has told him to do. It's just like that guy. Just nothing's going to stop him. He's just going to keep on going. And if you want to stretch the illustration beyond its stretching point, you can say that, well, Jesus is like those linemen, all right? He's down there making it happen, smacking the devil back and forth as Paul keeps running this race. So I think Paul would have appreciated that illustration. He was a sports guy. He's run the race. He's fin- he says, I finished the race. He, he, he's, the one, he's the one who uses those type of sports analogies. So let's look now at Paul's tremendous faithfulness to Christ. First of all, we get to this verse 18 where it says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer. He took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And then we get to this. It says, at Sancria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. 
Now, what does that mean? Why, what is this with his cutting his hair because he was under a vow? Well, apparently at some point in Paul's time in Corinth, he makes a serious vow, promise, commitment to the Lord. We're not sure exactly why he did this. There's no clue here in the text as to what the purpose was. This vow is probably a Nazarite vow. It was a, we'll read about it here in a second. It's a setting apart of yourself, separating yourself from the world, setting yourself apart for God. Perhaps he was seeking something from God. Maybe he had this vow uh, prior to his protection that he received at Gallio. Maybe he made this vow just praying and interceding for the believers in Corinth. Maybe just simply the fact that he's in Corinth, this city that's just, as I mentioned last week, is just rotten with paganism. And he says, I'm going to separate myself from the world. And I'm going to take this Nazarite vow. Whatever it is, he takes a vow. And it seems to be a Nazarite vow, which we read of in Numbers chapter 6. So let me read a little bit about what this vow is. It says in Numbers chapter 6, I'll start in verse 2. This is um, the Lord speaking to Moses. He says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when a, either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and he shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of the vow of his separation no razor shall touch his head, until the time is completed for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his, head, of his hair of his head grow long. Now we read on in that text that upon completion of the vow, there was this ceremony basically that, the, that this person would go through. They would come to the, to, the, to the temple, or in this case, when this was written, to the tabernacle, and they would, um, they would bring an offering to the Lord. Uh, and there was this whole uh, ritual that they would go through. And the last part of that ritual, in verse 18 of Numbers chapter 6, it says, The Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take the hair from his consecrated head, and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And we know that from Judaism, we can, we can read um, that this Nazarite vow was adapted as, as the Jews began to spread out all over the world. And uh, what the rabbis had concluded was that you could, you could do this Nazarite vow, and when you completed the vow, you could shave your head, and you had 30 days to get your hair back to Jerusalem to burn it at the altar. So it seems kind of odd to us, this, this Nazarite vow. But um, I think this vow is the reason there seems to be some urgency here from Paul. He gets to Ephesus, he preaches the gospel, but he doesn't stay there very long. He has to keep on going. I think he's made this vow. He's committed to seeing, through, seeing it through. And he's got to get back to Jerusalem. So there's some urgency here with Paul. Now, some people object to this, that Paul was taking a Nazarite vow, because they say, well, you know what? Paul's no longer bound by the Old Testament law. Why on earth would he take a Nazarite vow? But we have to remember that Paul is still a Jew, Paul is still a Jew, and he still worships like a Jew. He worships on the Sabbath. He worships at the synagogues. And he is uh, practicing an Old Testament ritual vow. And there's nothing contradictory to that. Just like when he had Timothy circumcised, Paul, as he said himself in 1 Corinthians 9, 2, he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law 
though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. So Paul's not going to Jerusalem thinking that this vow and these sacrifices or anything that he's doing is in any sort of way meriting anything with God. He's not going there saying that, okay, I'm somehow getting more right with God by doing this vow. He's not under the law. The law has been completed by Christ, but he continues to worship in ways that are very Jewish. And for, so when he sits down and says, you know, I, I got to make a serious vow to God right now, what pops into his mind is to make this Nazarite vow, which he does. I don't know if Paul would have made the sacrifices that accompanied the vow when he got to Jerusalem. We don't know this. It doesn't go into any details about that. Maybe he just burnt his hair because Paul knows that animal sacrifices are no longer needed. And so, anyway, this seems to be, though, that he is doing some sort of Nazarite vow here, and he needs to get to Jerusalem within the next 30 days. So he makes this vow, he makes this commitment to the Lord, and he's going to follow through with it. It says in verse 19, And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. He's talking about Priscilla and Aquila. He left them there to get their business started, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Okay? So you read this and you think, didn't Paul desire for the gospel to be established in Ephesus? I mean, he gets there. He preaches to them. They say, hey, stay longer. And he says, no, I can't. And so you're wondering, come on, Paul. You apparently have an open door here. There's no riot starting at the synagogue in Ephesus. They actually want to hear you again. You go into the other cities and they, they chase you out of town and you hang there for two, two three months, whatever. But here he says, no, i got to go. Because he's made this commitment. He did want to see the gospel established in Ephesus. That's why he brought Priscilla and Aquila with him, I'm convinced. He brings them and says, here, you guys, get your business started. Get this church going here in Ephesus. He had a special place in his heart for the people of Ephesus. We know that in chapter 20, he comes back. Well, actually, he comes back on the next missionary journey to Ephesus. And in chapter 20, we see particularly his love for Ephesus as he, as he bids farewell to the people in Ephesus. But he leaves them Priscilla and Aquila. But he knew due to his vow that he was not going to be able to stay any longer. So he heads on out. Now, we can only guess that Silas and Timothy remained in Corinth to keep strengthening that church. And we also know from 1 Corinthians 16, 19 that Priscilla and Aquila had a church in their home in Ephesus. So apparently they get the church started. They begin to meet in their home. But Paul had a commitment he'd made to Christ and he needed to keep it. So he heads on. And people, I want to say that when we make a commitment to God, we make a vow to God. We need to take it seriously. No, we're no longer under the law, but I think we need to take Deuteronomy chapter 23 seriously when it says if you made a vow to the Lord your God you shall not delay in fulfilling it for the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you'll be guilty of sin but if you refrain from vowing you will not be guilty of sin so be careful that you do it says you shall be careful to do what has passed your lips for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth I think we need to be careful. Ecclesiastes warns us against making rash vows. We're to be careful with what we promise to God. We need to pray about it. We need to take it to the Lord first. We need to ask His Spirit to bring it about. We need to be careful. When we make a vow to the Lord, when you join a church, 
you're not only making a commitment to a body of believers, you're making a commitment to God to be part of this body of believers and to minister within this body of believers. That is not to be taken lightly, and we take it so lightly in our culture. Any commitment you make to the Lord cannot be taken lightly. It is not to be taken, uh, oh well, God understands. When you commit, I'm going to fast this day. Lord, I'm going to fast this day. And then you get 10 minutes into the day and your stomach starts growling and you decide, just, oh, I'm just going to break that fast. I'll do it another day. I've done that. I'm guilty of that. That's a rash vow. That's trying to complete a vow in your own strength. The only way you can complete a vow to the Lord Jesus Christ is if he's doing it through you by his spirit. So it takes prayer. It takes commitment. And we need to be careful when we just make some sort of rash commitment to Jesus. You make a commitment. Oh, you know what? I'm going to head up that ministry. But then, well, you never really have the time to do it. We need to be careful what vows, what promises we make. When we feel the emotion of the moment, we need to pause. We need to pray. We need to ponder the Spirit's lead before we promise anything to God. We need to be sure we have a clear calling from God to make a commitment to Him on any sort of level. And, and, and this, should, this should apply all throughout our life. Okay? When, when um, we get, uh, you guys know, it's very public, we're part of the Safe Family Program. And when you get a phone call from the Safe Families and they say, hey, we've got a placement for you, I found myself now just beginning to say, oh, sure, that's great, just bring them over. When in reality, I need to stop and say, you know what, Margaret, I'm going to call you back in an hour. Because I need to pray before I make that sort of a commitment. Okay? And I find that even this weekend, that perhaps I should have prayed some more before I made the commitment that I made for the placement we had this weekend. Because I think we've got to be careful when we just say willy-nilly, we're going to do something for God. Remember Peter in Mark chapter 14? Uh, this, this passage, uh, Jesus has just told all the disciples... You're all going to abandon me. And what does Peter say? Even though they all fall away, I will not. And who had the most public falling away? It was Peter. Jesus turns to him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter emphatically says in verse 31, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And I think what Peter should have done is when Jesus said, you're all going to abandon me, should have fallen on his face and said, Jesus, no, don't let it happen. Instead of making this rash, oh yeah. Because when we make rash vows, you know whose strength we're making it in? Ours. We're making it in ours. Oh, I'm going to do this. And so making a vow to the Lord is important. And Paul wants to follow through on his vow. He stays focused on his faithfulness to the commitment he made to God even when other good ministry opportunities present themselves. Just because God opens a door doesn't mean he's calling us to walk through it. We have to be faithful to our calling. If he opens a door to you that causes you to abandon a calling that he's already made very clear in your life, then it may not be, it probably isn't one he's calling you to do. If you're being called to something that will cause you to abandon your calling dads to your home, then I doubt that's really what God's calling you to. Now, it may be, I'm not going to say definitively, because Jesus said, unless you love me more than you love your own family, you can't be my disciple. But I also know that Jesus is pretty consistent, and that God is pretty consistent, and when he gives us a family, he wants us to minister to that family. And so if you feel like, oh, God's calling me to Tanzania, but it means I'm going to have to leave my wife and my kids here for three years, I would reconsider that and make sure you're ready to make that vow, and it's from God. 
Now that's an extreme one. But I can apply it to what I just talked about with our safe families. It's one thing to say, yeah, bring the kids into our home. Come on, yeah, that's fine. But am I forsaking a vow that's even more important? That is to be faithful to my own family. So i got to be careful that there is a balance there. And so Paul finds the proper balance. He's made this commitment to the Lord. He's going to keep on going. Paul's focus is on his faithfulness. And he trusts Jesus with all the rest. In verse 21, he says, I'll return to you if God wills. He just trusts Jesus with everything else. Our trouble with serving God a lot of times is that we want to control the outcome. We want the outcome to be this. God, oh great, I'm going to serve you. Yay, and this is how I see the outcome. Woo! And then the outcome doesn't happen the way we want it. Well, I wouldn't have done it if you'd have done that, Jesus. You know, I think sometimes that we just serve based upon what we imagine the outcome being instead of just turning it over to God. If the Lord wills for him to return to Ephesus, I'll come back. If it's not the Lord's will, I'm sorry. If it's the Lord's will, I'll be back. And that's exactly what James talks about. He says, you know, we got to be careful when we say we're going to go do this or that. Instead, in verse 15 of James chapter 4, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. When we just make rash vows and we say, oh, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that, and we're just making it based upon our own strength and upon what we want the outcome to be, that's foolishness. Matter of fact, it's evil. We need to be careful how we approach God and how we approach our commitments to ministry. Faithfulness to a commitment, Paul's unrelenting faithfulness to Christ. He keeps on pushing. Verse 22, it says, when we landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. This means he went up to Jerusalem. Matter of fact, if you have a King James Bible, it probably already says earlier that he, the reason he told the Ephesians that he needed to get back was because he needed to be there for the feast in Jerusalem. Um, but it's clear, though, from the text that he does go to Jerusalem here. He goes up to Jerusalem, and then he went down to Antioch. He finished the task. He did what he was called to do. He completed his vow. Now, I added a point. Your notes do not have this point in it. I added it this morning. And that is, the third one, is that Paul was unwavering in his faithfulness to the gospel. I got to thinking about when he got to Ephesus, I, okay, he's on this journey to Jerusalem. He's got to get there. He's got to get there in 30 days. He's made this vow. And you're thinking that he, if anyone has an excuse just to lay back, okay, I've got a little bit of a layover here before I've got to catch the next boat. If anyone has an excuse to just take it easy after all that he's been through, it's Paul. But what does he do? He leaves Priscilla and Aquila. Okay, you guys start getting things going here. I'm heading to the synagogue to preach. I got a little time here before I got to catch my boat. He's, he's unwavering in his faithfulness to just get the gospel out there, to share the gospel, to preach the gospel. And so he goes to the synagogue and begins reasoning with the Jews. Now remember, he's on this urgent mission. Okay? Apparently he had some sort of window of opportunity to share the gospel here, and he does it. But I think... If I were Paul, I know if I were Paul, because I know my own weaknesses, I would have taken any excuse just to take a little break. Oh, it's been tiring. Oh, you know what? I'm not even going to stay here. There's no need for me to go talk in the synagogue today. 
I've used excuses like that to avoid sharing my faith, to avoid sharing the gospel. Oh, you know, I just can't today. It's not today. I'm just too tired. And so I think that Paul here, he's got such a commitment to the gospel, such a commitment to the truth, that when he has even a slight opportunity, he says, well, you know what? The boat's not leaving until tomorrow. I might as well go over to the synagogue and start preaching, start sharing, start reasoning with the Jews. So Paul, he takes this journey. He's committed to Christ, his faithfulness to the gospel. And it says in verse 23, um, well, let me hold off on verse 23. I just want to get to, to, to my fourth point here real quick. That Paul was unshakable in his faithfulness to the church. So he gets back. He goes, he completes his vow, goes to Jerusalem. He goes uh, now to Antioch. Antioch's his home church. Now you almost miss it here. You almost miss it here. But this passage is the end of the second missionary journey and the beginning of the third. You, 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 the other two missionary journeys, it's real clear when they start. And it's like, oh yeah, you know, there's all this prayer and fasting and they send them out. But you miss it if you're, if you're not paying attention to this text right here. Like I said, Luke condenses a lot here. But the second missionary journey ends when he gets to Antioch. He gets to Antioch. He brings a report to them, stays with them for a while. And what does he do? He's so committed to the gospel, he's got to keep on going. (laughs) He's got to keep on preaching. He's got to keep on heading back to the churches. And what does he do? In verse 23, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. This is where he first planted churches. And he goes back and he strengthens the churches he's already planted because Paul has an unshakable faithfulness to the church. And maybe you're a little unnerved by my use of so many unwords this morning. But I was trying to make it somewhat memorable. So he has this faithfulness to the church. He's amazing. If anybody could have just said, you know, I've been around the world twice and... uh, it's time to kind of retire, and maybe I'll just pick up a Sunday school class here in Antioch and teach it for a while. Now, not Paul. Not Paul. He says, i got to keep going. i got to set off again. Let's start the third missionary journey. So if you go to our, our map here, you'll see that you know, here he is. He's come back after his, his missionary journey. He takes this long trip from, okay, here he is in Ephesus. They set sail. He comes all the way back to Caesarea, goes up to Jerusalem to finish his vow, Travels back up to his home church of Antioch. Okay, and that's where he starts off again. And he goes from there back into this region. It begins to strengthen these churches. It'll be his third visit to these churches. That's how much he loves the church. That's how faithful he is to the church. He visits these churches a third time because he loves the bride of Christ. He's faithful to Christ He's faithful to Christ's message, the gospel, and he's faithful to Christ's bride, the church. He loves the church. So I ask us, how faithful are we to the church? Do we love the church? So let's think about all three of our points this morning before we come to this table, all four of our points before we come to this table, because this table represents everything we've talked about this morning. It represents, first of all, Christ's faithfulness to us. An unswerving faithfulness that He shed His blood and broke His own body 
for the forgiveness of our sins to establish a new covenant. And that was for us. That's His faithfulness to us. And so here we are now this morning. And we come because Christ has called us. He said He gave us two ordinances. One is baptism. The other is the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. We don't do it as often as we should at Harbin's. I'll be the first to admit that. Do this. And so we are told, commanded to do this. We're commanded to do that. And part of our faithfulness to Him is to be faithful with that. To be faithful and to do this. And to not just take it lightly. It's not a, this, isn't a, this isn't a rash vow. Let's just, let's just do the Lord's Supper. Paul spoke about people that took this lightly and he said they were getting sick and they were dying because they took this lightly. So we come here this morning and we do this act of faithful devotion to Christ and we better not do it lightly. Sit in your seat if you're going to do it lightly and don't come partake. Don't come up here if you view this lightly. There's nothing magical about the grape juice. There's nothing magical about the bread. The supernatural is Christ's body, Christ's blood. But he said, do this as a symbol to remember what I did and to proclaim it. And so, don't do this lightly. Don't let your kids view this lightly. And so, we come here this morning to be faithful to the command that God has given us to do through Jesus Christ because he's been faithful to us. And we proclaim the gospel when we do this. We're being faithful to the gospel when we eat and drink the elements of the Lord's Supper. And we do this as a body. We do this together. We do it unique here at Harbin's. You'll see in a minute if you're new to this. But we still do it as a body. We, we do this together because we are a church. We're a family. And if you're here this morning and you're frustrated with your, your physical family, with your blood relatives, guess what? If you're a believer, you have another family. You have a body here that loves you, that you're part of. If you've truly made your commitment to Christ and you've been born again. So this morning here, these four points that we've talked about in the sermon today can be applicable to what we're doing here. So as we think about Christ's faithfulness to us, let's ponder how faithful we are to him. In the next few minutes, I want us to pray and to get ready for the Lord's Supper. Deemer's going to come up here and lead us in the Lord's Supper. But... Keeping in mind what I said about not taking this lightly, I want to take the next few minutes just to pray. And what I want everyone to do is to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer. But first, we're going to start off with just a time of silence because I want you just to confess. I want you to confess your lack of faithfulness to God because don't sit here and say, ah, I'm, I'm perfectly faithful. No, we are all unfaithful. Our only hope is that he remains faithful. We mess up every day. So with every head bowed and every eyes closed, I want us to take the next few minutes just in silence. And children, I ask you to help us out here. Just be quiet and listen. And if you're a Christian, I want you to be talking to Jesus yourself and telling him what you've done wrong, confessing your sin to him and asking him for forgiveness. For the next few minutes of silence, let's just have some silent confession before the Lord.
Lord Jesus, forgive us for our sin. We live in such a corrupt, sin-saturated world. And um, God, we are a product of that world. But our great hope isn't that we can claw our way out of it. Our great hope is that Jesus, and Jesus alone, by grace alone, that we receive through faith alone, grabbed us and pulled us out of that mire, pulled us out of that, that state of sinful deadness. But God, we know that until, oh Lord, until we're with you in heaven or until Christ returns, whichever's first, and I pray, come Lord Jesus any day now, come. Whichever's first, Lord, we know that we are in a process called sanctification where we are being made into the image of Christ. Our salvation is complete, yet it is still being completed. And so, God, that's such a mysterious truth. But, God, help us to, in that state of sanctification, allow your Holy Spirit to just expose us for how, how, how wicked we still are, and how much sin we still need to confess, and how much we need your help with, and how much we need you to continue to work in us and change us. And so, God, we confess our sins to you here this morning, corporately, as a body of believers, as a family of Christian believers in this local expression of the body of Christ, we together lift up our sins corporately and say, Jesus, please forgive us of our sins. We confess that we are sinners and we have sinned. We ask for your forgiveness. And get us ready now, Lord, uh, to receive the elements of this beautiful ordinance that you gave the church. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we typically do do um, communion a little bit different uh, if you're if you're new here. Um, what I'd like to do is have what, what we normally do is have. Um, a member of the family, the head of a the head of the family, the husband, come and take the elements, bring them back to share with the family. Uh, if if you're here today, uh, single mom, or your husband's not here, then you need to come and get the elements for your family. Obviously, if you're a single person, then you come as well. Um, and we're just gonna it's real simple. We're just gonna line up right here, and uh, you'll take the cup. Take the bread to share with your family. Take it back to your family. But hang on to it, though. Don't, don't consume those elements until everybody has them. And then I'll lead us into taking those elements together. We want to do it at the same time because I think that says something about uh, the, the unity of this body. Yes, there are individual flesh and blood family units in this room. But there is a family here that, that uh, supersedes that, and that is the family of God. So if I can have um, the members, representatives of families come right now and and take the elements and take them back to your seat. That would be great.
what you're about to partake actually is a is a Passover supper. Um, the very first communion, the very first Lord's Supper that Jesus had with his disciples in that room, uh, that was actually a, a Passover meal. That was a Passover feast. And um, uh, the Passover, of course, was a, um, a commemorative feast. It was a celebratory feast. It was celebrating something that God did for the children of Israel a long time ago. Israel was in bondage uh, and slavery to Egypt uh, under the heel, under the impression of an evil king under Pharaoh. And God delivered the people of Israel from that. Uh, Pharaoh would not let the people go, so God came and used Moses and performed mighty signs and wonders in Egypt. And uh, the, the, the final act that, uh, that, Jesus, uh, that God did while Israel was still in slavery was that he judged the Egyptians, and it was a, it was a serious judgment. Um, God sent an angel to kill the firstborn of every person in Egypt because Israel was God's son, and God is saying to Pharaoh, you mess with my son, I will kill yours. And it was an act of judgment. And there was only one way to escape from that judgment. And people had to uh, take a lamb, an animal, sacrifice that animal, take some blood from that animal, and put it on the doorpost of their house. Uh, that, that was an act of faith, by the way, for people to, to believe that word and to do that. And when the angel of death passed over homes in Egypt, whichever home had that blood applied to the door, that angel passed over that home, and everybody in that home was, was safe, and they were spared of, of God's judgment. And after that, Pharaoh did release Israel, and Israel was free from slavery. And Jesus, with his disciples, are celebrating this Passover meal to, uh, to commemorate that event, as Israelites were doing every single year for hundreds of years. And Jesus gives the Passover meal new meaning. And he says, this bread and this wine that you're eating during this meal, uh, let, me, let me tell you what this really means. This is my body, and this is my blood. And what happened in the book of Exodus when God released Israel from bondage to Egypt, that was great, but it was pointing to something greater. Because Jesus came into the world to see a people, to save a people that was in bondage to a tyrant that was worse than Pharaoh. To a people that was in bondage to sin, uh, in bondage to the devil. And Jesus came to set those people free from that oppression, from that slavery. And he did so by sacrificing his body and pouring out his blood for his people. And that is what the Passover now is meant to commemorate. And what I'd like to do is um, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. We're going to partake of these elements together as one body, as one covenant people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we're about to take of the bread, let me lead us in prayer and thank Jesus for sacrificing his body for us. God, thank you so much that you loved your people so much that you sent your one and only son to give up his body as a sacrifice for sins. That whosoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, thank you so much that Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. What a great love. What a great Savior. What a great sacrifice. Thank you that you died so that we don't have to. In Jesus' name, amen. And let's eat together in remembrance of him. Scripture then goes on to say, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And let's pray and thank God for the blood that was spilt for us. Father, thank you that your blood that the blood of Jesus was shed for us. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Somebody has to die for sin. Either it's going to be us, or it's going to be a perfect sacrifice for us. Thank you for those in this room who have received Jesus Christ as Savior. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers the sins, washes away the sins, makes clean all those who put their trust in him. And thank you that we can be confident that you will never let go of us, God, that no one will ever snatch us from your hand, and that we will never perish. And God, in a world where promises are broken all the time and covenants are broken all the time, I think, how can we be sure that your covenant will stand, that you will keep your promises? And I'm reminded that not only are you truth, and whatever you say is true, and you always keep your promises, but this covenant was sealed by blood. Thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. And let's drink together in remembrance of the shed blood of Jesus. We're going to move into our time of response now. Mark's going to lead us in a, in a final song. This is a time to put your prayer request in the basket.
to put your offering in the basket, to pray, to respond to God. And maybe something you heard in the message that God spoke to you about, this is a time to talk back to God about that. This is a time, uh, perhaps you want to pray about something in your own life. I'm happy to pray with you. I'll be up here more than happy to pray with you. Perhaps you want to receive Jesus Christ as Savior because you never, you never did. I'll be up here. I'll be more than happy. It would be an honor and a privilege for me to talk with you about that as well. Let's continue to worship the Lord. Can it be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who cost his pain? For me who him to death pursued Amazing love, how can it be That thou, my God, should die for me Amazing love, how can it be That thou, my God should die for me. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. His mercy, all immense and free. For oh my God, it found out me. His mercy, all immense and free. For, oh my God, it found out me. Yes, Lord, you're the one who found us. You chose us. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. I, I just...